Good morning, world. Welcome to episode 20 of the Realist Facebook Live podcast brought to you by Real Leaders Magazine. Where's that magazine? Right here. Real Leaders Magazine is on a mission uh, to highlight the real leaders taking on the world's most pressing issues. Today, we're with one of those people, my friend, Henry Gordon Smith, who is an urban agriculture consultant. And today, we're going to be talking about a lot of cool things about what's really going on in the world and how we can use innovation in agriculture to feed the food insecure and everyone around the world who don't know where their next meal is coming from. So with that, I'm going to bring in my friend, Henry. Henry, how are we doing this morning? Thanks for coming on the show. I'm great. Thanks for having me. How's everybody doing? We're doing good here. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a cloudy day in the Northwest. Um, you know, we're, we're coming here in Portland, Oregon. Where are you coming from? Uh, Brooklyn, New York City. Oh, Brooklyn, East Coast. Oh, yeah. So good morning from Portland, Oregon, and good afternoon from the East Coast. Um, Henry, we're going to start us off today with a little food for thought. Um, so, you know, in preparation for this, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, the, what the United Nations says, the 815 million people around the world who don't know, know where the next, their next meal is coming from, I kind of think of like rural parts of the world um, that either climate change is forcing them out of their, their area where they've been cultivating their land for years. But in fact, 20% of all undernourished people in the world live in urban areas. Now, this is something that you specialize in. What is going on in urban areas around the world? Well, I think you're exactly right that the food system is a mess. In some ways, it's been hugely successful in producing huge amounts of food. And actually, one of the interesting facts out there is that we produce enough food to feed everyone globally. We just don't distribute it properly. So there's mm -hmm. so much waste in the food system. There's so much inequality in the food system that a lot of the people that need that quality food don't get it, even though it's grown. And so when we think about urban areas, what we've done in most societies is we've modernized. Uh, so we've actually pushed agriculture out of the city. We've said, you know, this is a place for buildings. This is a place for businesses. This is a place for technology, but it's not a place for food, that basic human need that we all have. Mm. And I think there's been serious consequences to that because what we've done is we've centralized agriculture in other places, which in some ways increases efficiency, but increases waste along the process. So mm. as that food is transported, it's wasted. As it's transported, it actually loses nutritional value. And furthermore, because we don't have agriculture in the city or near us anymore, we don't understand it. We don't know how to grow anything. We don't know how to identify plants anymore. We don't understand what a farm looks like or feels like. And so when you're disconnected from food in so many different ways, there's consequences. And, and some of those consequences have been that the people who, who have the most difficult time affording uh, their basic needs uh, have less nutrition, have less access to food. So urban agriculture, you know, there's many different kinds of urban agriculture. We can talk about that. But it's trying to bring uh, that, that agriculture, that greenery back into the city, not only for yield purposes, but to reduce waste and to increase access. Right, right. So you said there's many different ways of urban agriculture. You know, as a consultant, kind of what's your role going into this? Like, what does your position look like? Yeah, so I started as a blogger uh, almost nine years ago now. I started getting really curious about how cities could feed themselves. And I was interested in water issues and, and other topics, but food was the one I was really excited about. Mm. And what I found is, is as I was blogging about this topic, I found there were so many different ways to do this. You know, there are rooftop hydroponic greenhouses. There's kind of indoor vertical farms like you see here. There's a typical community garden. And, you know, each of those models can be successful. 
and, and so I was really interested in knowing what makes or breaks those models. What makes one work or not? Is it mm. the kind of size? Is it the, 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 the climate? Um, is it the, the crops that the consumers demand? Mm. And the answer is it's kind of all of those things. And, and, and you have to look at the context every single time to develop one that's successful. Uh, there's not one size that fits all. And so if you imagine like a spectrum, right, of low-tech to high-tech agriculture, on the low-tech side, you've got the typical community garden. On the high-tech side, you have like a robot vertical farm. There's trade-offs all the way in the middle, right? If you have greenhouse in the middle, you've got uh, lower energy because you've got natural light coming into the greenhouse, but you can maybe use hydroponics to save water. Mm. On this high-tech side, you have a lot of energy use, but really, really enormous yields per square foot. But there's a carbon footprint concern here. Um, you've got uh, labor conditions that might be a concern here for some. And on the low-tech side, you've got really ecological, uh, it manages rainwater, contributes to biodiversity, it provides safe you know, social spaces for community members. But in the wintertime, for example, here in Brooklyn, it doesn't produce at all. It just goes completely right. dead. These systems are more high-tech and grow, grow year-round. So four years ago, I started getting requests uh, from people who wanted to have my advice based on all the things I had been analyzing on how to design and build their own farms. And because I wasn't representing a particular technology or a particular approach, but I was looking at the full spectrum, they could trust that I was giving them uh, holistic advice is what we call it, or, or an interdisciplinary approach. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we built a business around at Agritecture Consulting, is we, we, we remain technology agnostic, we embrace the whole variety of the spectrum, we educate our clients on what options they have, and, and we think that gets us to a more food secure future because the entrepreneurs are more informed and educated about the options available to them, and, and thus are more successful. Interesting stuff, Henry. So that was the biggest thing I want to ask you about because there's so many different issues around the world. Like I said before, you have the people in uh, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa and the Philippines who don't know where their next meal is coming from. And then we have 20% of people in urban areas that don't know where the next meal is coming from either. How, you know, these are, like you said, they vary a ton and there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Now, what are your clients like? Who comes to you for advice? Yeah, so, so most of our clients are uh, entrepreneurs. They've, they've, they've either been successful with a previous business and now they feel the kind of social entrepreneurship uh, leadership opportunity. And they say, you know what, I sold my tech business or I sold my whatever business and now I want to get into this urban agriculture trend. I, I really see potential. Most of them see potential in the high-tech approaches to agriculture, the, the, the ones that get you year-round production. Um, and so they're really excited about it, but, they, but they're not growers. They don't have any experience in agriculture. As I said, we've disconnected from agriculture, so a lot of people don't have that knowledge in cities. And they come to us uh, because we have growers on our team, we've got engineers on our team, we have plant scientists, uh, we have experienced urban farmers on our teams. They come to us for the advice on you know, what they should grow, uh, what size the farm should be, whether they should go greenhouse, vertical, or soil. Uh, and we basically do feasibility studies as the majority of our work. So that's where we started. I think now we get a lot more a variety of clients. We get some clients, including multinationals, that want to understand the different uh, carbon footprint between different types of farming, or they want to understand which markets they should maybe focus on if they're developing technologies for this industry. Uh, we also work with cities. So we help cities now do their local food system planning and strategies. So it's been, uh, I, I got to pinch myself because, you know, again, the start is just a little blog and, and it's been exciting to see that we've, we've done over 70 projects in 10 countries in four years. So you start with a little block. Yeah. So you're, you're interested in, in plants. You're interested in, in how we can make things more efficient. And how many years has it been since you started that block? 
Yeah, so I first started experimenting with the blog and doing my first uh, stories about nine years ago, and then I publicly launched it seven years ago. Like, so I really built a, a brand around it. Mm. And so seven years of the blog, and then four years ago, uh, we started consulting. And what's your impact been like? I mean, can you measure something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. What's your impact? I mean, I think the the... The, the, the main impact has been we can take an entrepreneur's dreams in urban agriculture and make it a reality. Yeah. We, we can help them fill in the gaps, even if their ideas is, is really wild. So, you know, uh, Kimball Musk and, and his business partner, Tobias Peggs, uh, wanted to start the first vertical farming accelerator. They had a very ambitious and, and aggressive schedule for that. They hired us and we were able to help them uh, get that off the ground and, and get it ready within four to five months. And so they were able to keep their investors happy and, and get the first entrepreneurs, uh, 10 entrepreneurs basically go through the program. Uh, one of our clients, uh, Rob Lang, uh, built the, you know, we helped him build Manhattan's first commercial vertical farm and they grow 250 rare varieties for Michelin star restaurants. Uh, and they have a farm in Manhattan, which is very, very rare. Uh, you know, we've got uh, clients who, who want to do community projects. We've got a client in North Carolina that, that wants to build a cooperative around greenhouses. And, and um, you know, these models are becoming increasingly important in communities in need where they, they not only have a job, but they have an ownership in the business. Um, our first client was a special needs school that wanted to convert uh, a, 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 an extra room they had in their school into a vertical farm to teach uh, the special needs students food safety and, and job wow. skills so they can work in the food industry. And, and, you know, they just contacted us again last week. They're expanding to a full commercial vertical farm from a classroom now. We're helping them with that. So I think, I think our main impact is just helping entrepreneurs, you know, get to that next step, which is, which is when you're an entrepreneur and you have a vision, you, you need help. You know, sometimes, sometimes your, your vision is so out there that you need to fill in all these gaps and we can help them get there faster and, and, and really reduce risk. Well, you know, what's so interesting to me is like, we have all, we have such a big food issue on this planet, but when you look at examples, like what you did with, um, you know, the, the kids in the classroom who you developed a vertical, um, is a vertical, what's the correct term? Vertical greenhouse, vertical, yeah, farm? vertical, vertical farms. So vertical farms farm? are like stacked levels of cultivation, kind of like this. Okay. Sometimes they can have natural light. Typically they're completely mm -hmm. artificially lit. Typically they don't have soil because when you're stacking things, you want to reduce mm -hmm. the weight. Um, as soil, well as so control out of what? What do they grow out of? Water or what? Yeah, it's in it's in, it's in water. Um, let me see what I can show you. We got. Yeah, we got some. All right, yeah. folks, we're getting a live stream of what a vertical farm looks like. So we've got some lemon balm here. This is growing actually in our Plus Farm, which oh, is, is a, a DIY vertical farm that you can download the Look instructions for and, and build your own. And so this is like a floating raft system, and so. Basically, the roots kind of are suspended. You huh. can't really see them very well there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's no soil, and so the roots just grow into the water. The water has nutrients and oxygen, the right temperature. Um, obviously, with a vertical farm, you need to replace uh, sunlight. So you've got you know, LED lights typically. You can see very thin. And um, yeah, we've got some mint, some lemon balm. And, uh, yeah, and, look at, and folks, look at that. That's what? That's like an office desk or a filer it's like this a filing desk almost, yeah. So this is a salad wall, which is a, it's a, it's a product that a Japanese company developed. And so it's really thin. It's intended for restaurants and kind of offices. You've got like 100, uh, 200 plant sites there. So, you know, it's pretty meaningful for a restaurant. Uh, and Henry, how, how long are these plants 
you know, how long do they take until you can actually, you know, reap the, uh, the benefits from them? Yeah. So one of the trade-offs of vertical farming, for example, is that you can't grow everything economically. So when you're, when you're in, you know, every plant needs its own, uh, you know, depth, it needs its own climate and it takes a, a different time to grow. So when you're looking mm -hmm. at vertical farms, you're typically growing short cycle crops. Uh, you're growing microgreens, which are essentially small sprouted greens that grow into 14 days. They're packed with nutrients, but they're, they're pretty small. You've got leafy greens like lettuces, and then you've got uh, different lettuce mixes, and you've got arugulas, you've got basil. You know, these are the typical crops that would be grown in vertical farms. So that's not, you know, that's not a huge variety, um, and that's not going to feed the world on its own. And so the way I like to think about it is, you know, those are the products that freshness matters the most. Mm -hmm. um, so, so why import them from California? You know, if you go to a supermarket here, it's typically brought in from California. That's going to have a lower nutritional value, lower quality. So vertical farms play a role in the food system, but they don't solve food security overall. Now, if you move to greenhouses, you've got things like tomatoes and vine crops. Those take longer to grow. You know, it could be four months before you get your first fruit, and that'll produce fruit over uh, the whole rest of the year. And so when you have a crop that, that takes longer to grow, you need more light, uh, you need more more space because you know you need a lot more space to get the same product that you can sell. So so those typically don't work effectively in, in indoor vertical farms today um, because because of the high energy and because of the amount of space they need. So so when I think about the cities of the future and 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 how they can have enough food for everyone and and how that food could be distributed, it's about the right mix of those farms. You know, mm. soil can grow potatoes. You can grow a lot more variety uh, of crops and 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 than the vertical farms and greenhouses, but we need that mix, that kind of variety for the city to be uh, sustainable. Now, Henry, did you say 14 days? That looks like that library shelf over there. It takes 14 days to sprout one of those plants. So, so for the ones in the library shelf, no, those, like, those are, 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 we're growing like a full plant. So that's more like 30, 30 days. Okay. Right now what you're looking at there is probably only, eh, it's probably, yeah, 20 days in there right now. And okay. then when it's 30 days, you'll probably harvest it. 35 days will harvest it. So that's like a typical basil plant you'd probably have for 35 days in an indoor system. But microgreens are like, um, I don't think we have any growing here right now. The microgreens are just small um, sprouted seeds essentially. And those only take eight to 14 days. Hmm. And, and you'll see a lot of people in, in America have small businesses growing microgreens or, or wheatgrass. You know, you probably see wheatgrass at the store. You can grow that in these systems very easily. And packed with nutrition, very easy to grow, doesn't require a lot of light or, or nutrition, nutrients to add to it. Um, so that's kind of what you're seeing with the different systems, roughly speaking. Well, I think you made an interesting point when you said, you know, these are the fresh produce, the fresh herbs that matter. That's why we started with these things. And I remember interviewing Ava Technologies uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I love those guys. Indoor smart guns. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. Um, and he, Chase was telling me that it takes 50 days for the average fruit to reach the store. So you got to think about that, you know, 14 to 30 days to grow your own fresh organic, you know, whether it's, um, arugula or any other herb, um, 14 to 30 days, or you can go to the store and buy it and it's less fresh and it took 50 days to get there and then 30 days on top. So that's about 80 days. Exactly. For, yeah. So the the conver the question we have is you know why are more people doing this I mean what's the challenge that you're seeing like the average um, consumer face with the, uh, in terms of getting a fresh product or uh, establishing an indoor garden in inside their ho uh, home or apartment Yeah, it's a, it's a great question whether whether it's growing at home whether it's growing um, with it, with it, let's say a community plot 
or whether it's growing in a, in a commercial urban farm, there's challenges uh, that are preventing this from scaling up and, and, and getting much more active. I think at home, the challenge is the time. I think people in mm-hmm. cities are very busy, and although they do enjoy gardening, um, and, and, and they, they, they like the idea of it, the actual work every day of maintaining the water, checking the temperature, harvesting the crops, what if you have too much, do you waste it? You know, um, that's, that's a challenge, I think, for anybody growing at home. And, and, and so most of the time I find that people um, have the issue of space or time is their biggest concern. Um, you know, they're probably willing to invest some money in it. If it's a cool thing, it looks cool, it's fun, but it's the time that's harder for them to digest. Mm. If you go to the community side, the problem there is that you, know, some, you need the space to, for it to be meaningful. So a lot of community gardens actually have waiting lists. People do want to join them, but there's not enough of those kind of community-style models for people to engage with. So actually this space here, we have a, a community group called, or, or, or another business called AgTechX, which is a, like a WeWork for hydroponics. Mm-hmm. So people can come in and, and experiment with the systems without buying one, and they can get their confidence up, and they can interact with like-minded people, and even get some, some product to take home with them. So I think models like that need to develop, whether it's uh, shared spaces in, in, in condo buildings, or, or, or you know, schools do a great job with this, actually. But models like that for community is probably the most economical way for cities to do this. On the commercial side, the problems are that you know, when you're investing in, in building any business in a city, but especially what I would call like a manufacturing business, which is, which is what these are, these, these kind of are factories, you're trying to produce uh, quality food, but, but you're trying to produce in a, in a, in a manufacturing, a consistent way, that's your value proposition, is clean, consistent, local. You know, you have to pay for urban real estate. You have to hire people who are paid urban salaries. Um, so, you know, you're competing with soil-based agriculture typically in places that have free sunlight. Um, sometimes they're not, they don't even pay for water. Um, and, 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 you know, even though the transportation costs are getting higher, they still end up being cheaper and being able to compete with, with the urban, uh, urban-grown product. Mm. So, that's, so it's, it's more of a cost challenge for, for those farms. Um, there's some other challenges like regulation. You know, some cities don't actually have zoning that allows you to build urban farms. So you have to kind of skirt in a vague, uh, you know, rules and, 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 and you don't want to get in trouble for that, but, but you have the, the potential to get in trouble for that. So, you know, there's different challenges across uh, the spectrum of, of integrations, but, uh, but it's getting, you know, it's getting easier. Technology is improving. Uh, so the costs of technology are going down. Consumers are demanding local more and more, even, even relative to organic. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. People are saying that organic doesn't really give me everything I need. Local feels more family farm, trustworthy, uh, lower impact to them. So that's been an interesting trend to watch. Um, and you start, you're starting to have policies in cities like Atlanta, uh, New York, Paris, Singapore, that are really uh, saying we, 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 wanna, we value urban agriculture as, as part of the, the urban tapestry. And, and so it's improving, but we need more farmers. We need more innovators. Uh, we need more more support uh, to kind of get 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 this innovation even more scaled up. Now, Henry, is there, is there kind of a rift between the traditional farmers and urban uh, you know, agri- agriculturist agri techs? Um, <laughs> I mean, is is there kind of an issue? I feel like farmers, you know, it's very traditional. They've had the land for many years, um, and then now you get the people. Um, who can produce food within their own homes or in cities and then sell them to local merchants, the, the costs are less. Is there a riff? And then also, are traditional farmers being affected by climate change? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And I think the, the first thing to think about is that there are so many different kinds of farms. So you've got kind of small-scale, local, 
uh, organic farms around New York City, for example, and mm -hmm. around a lot of cities. And, and those farms, I think in a lot of ways, are, are, are experiencing similar challenges and opportunities to urban farms, even if they're 100 miles outside of the city. You know, they're relatively small. They depend on farmers' markets. They depend on okay. direct consumer sales. So those farms, um, I'd say they, there's a rift between them and urban farmers because urban farmers have the advantage on accessing the customer and showcasing their farm. And so those farms really should work together because they can grow different things. But right now, there's a little bit of a rift depending on which city you look at. Okay. Um, within cities, you have rifts actually between, you know, um, there's racial issues, right? So, so when, when urban farmers and kind of high-tech entrepreneurs come in with vertical farming and you have community gardeners, which are typically focused on, um, you know, social integration, safe spaces, there's a bit of a rift there too that, that mm, needs to be noted. Um, but if you look at the... At, 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 you know, large-scale agriculture in America, for example, what if one, see, one, one trend we see is that there's bigger and bigger farms. So the farms are actually, as, as, because the average age of the farmer is going up, because young people are moving to the city, because parents aren't raising their children saying, hey, man, you should be a, a farmer, right? They're saying, hey, you should work at Google, right? So, so you know, that, that, that has a cost. And so what's happening is the farms are now buying up, big farming companies are buying up small farms and making them into bigger farming companies. Now, urban agriculture is a tiny drop in the bucket um, in, their, in their budgets and, and, and in, in, in their total sales. So they're not really concerned about it now. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that it's too small to, 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 to bother those big companies right now. But as I said, I think there's other kinds of farms that, that, that feel affected by that. Now, your second question was, let me think about it. What was your second question? It was, it was are fa traditional farmers being affected by climate change? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at... Um, if you look at what just happened with the last hurricane, I forgot the name of it. Uh, anyway, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of damage to various orchards and farms in Georgia uh, that mm -hmm. were affected by that hurricane. So, so you know, when you have farms that are exposed to the environment, you have the benefits of free sunlight, but you have other cons. You have pests that can come in as the climate changes. Pest patterns change as well. You've got drought that can affect your whole source of, of water. That's, that's an effect of climate change that's, right, that's happening cons consistently. And then you have storms that can really eliminate and, and destroy a lot of this. So when we think about the more high-tech controlled environment agriculture, it can't really compete um, on yield with soil-based agriculture, but it can compete on resilience to climate change because the greenhouses don't get damaged in the same way. The vertical farms don't get damaged typically at all from these kinds of storms. And they have so much control over their resources, um, meaning they're using a lot less resources per, per plant, per pound of output, uh, that, that they, they have a resilience that, 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 that traditional farms struggle with. So yeah, traditional farms all over the world, and even the products we're importing, whether it's bananas or avocados or fruits, there are, there are really high levels of risk um, in the face of climate change. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's, it's, it's part of why we do what we do. We see our company as focused on adaptation. We're trying to get enough successful models for urban agriculture uh, out there through our clients so that cities have a, have a chance at adapting to climate change. Because right now, cities are not prioritizing food from a resilience perspective. They're prioritizing things like uh, you know, stormwater protection or, or right. energy protection, which are important, right. but they're, they're really not focusing on food at all. Well, I think it's something to pay attention to going forward. I mean, there's so many in, or negative in, impacts that is basically strictly due to climate change. And, you know, Henry, when I was, when I was stalking you in preparation for this call, I uh, was looking at one of your, your speeches you did at some conference. I don't know where it was. 
But you mentioned a very important statistic that the average age of a traditional farmer is 58. 58 years old, uh, yeah. backbreaking work, 58 years old for a traditional farmer. Definitely something to take in note. And to go off that point, I interviewed a 15-year-old from India. And the challenge his high school uh, faced him with was to um, create a social enterprise based around farming. And so he looked cool. at this issue in India and he found that there were since 1990 in India alone, there's been 200,000 suicides, farmer suicides. Now you think about that. Now, why are these farmers committing suicide? Well, their land is no, is, is unable to cultivate any produce whatsoever mm -hmm. anymore. It's, um, insustainable. It's inefficient. And so mm -hmm. his model had basically, converted a sustainable and technolo technological infused greenhouse, whatever it was, right? So just to think about that, um, where society is going due to the impacts of climate change is huge. Now, I think we've talked a little bit about energy and, uh, and with the vertical farms um, and hydroponics, um, 4 billion, now let me get this, let me get this right, I wanna get this wrong. Yeah, 4 billion people, this is from the United Nations, don't have access to electricity worldwide. How does that play a role in what you're trying to do? Yeah, so I think you brought up some really good points about the, the challenges that, that are facing farmers around the world, and, and they are different depending on each climate, um, but they are pretty pretty dire, and, and India is one of those examples. One of the things I found really interesting in India as well is that, you know, for example, if, you're, if you have an animal a husbandry on, on your farm, you need grass, you need quality product for them. Typically, you don't have the space to grow that, so you depend on buying that from somebody, but they prioritize you based on how big your farm is. So if you have a small farm, you get the last batch of that grass um, for, the, for your animals, and, and that low quality affects your business significantly, and so, yeah, you end up sometimes uh, committing suicide to deal with that, which is, which is terrible. In the U.S. as well, on the, on the 58 years old number, it's been going up for 30 years. That number's been increasing. So we have to be pretty drastic to reverse that. Um, now, on the energy side, you're absolutely right. You know, hydroponics, uh, especially indoor uh, vertical farming, requires a lot of energy. You know, all these lights need to be powered. When you have a big farm, you need to control the temperature in that farm. Greenhouses also require energy, but much, much less, uh, depending on, on the kind of sunlight or daily light integral that's mm -hmm. available where the greenhouse is located. So what's the solution? Well, I think hydroponics still is a solution for the developing world. It's just simplified hydroponics. What we find in a lot of developing world is, is they actually are close to the equator, and they actually have pretty decent sunlight, um, but what they don't have is a lot of arable land. What they don't have is a lot of um, money to buy land. And so while hydroponics does have a cost with equipment, there's actually something really interesting and you can Google it called simplified hydroponics. You can see some examples in South America. We can basically build you know, tables with, with some plastic or, or other materials, sometimes recycled materials, and, and you can actually cut the holes like you saw here in this system. And you can build systems that recirculate the water. You, know, you need a pump, you need electricity, Solar panels are difficult to get to, but even without electricity, you can have a hydroponic system. Hydroponics is actually an ancient technology. Um, you know, it was, it was used, uh, it, the myth goes, it was used for the Hagen Guards of Babylon, but there's actually oh, yeah. evidence of it ever being used in yeah. Mexico. Um, there's, there's evidence of being used actually in, in Asia. Um, people used to, people do, used to do aquaponics, where they would, they would actually float plants on top of lakes uh, where the fish were, and, and the waste from the fish would actually provide nutrients for the plants. Um, and those would be symbiotic relationships. So that's you know, still, there's, 
uh, Henry, yeah. there's still fishes, uh, or still there's fishes. There's still fish in hydroponics, <laughs> right? Don't they? It depends. So that, that's a variation of hydroponics. There's there's different kinds of hydroponics, and one is aquaponics. And aquaponics basically says, you know, instead of using mined minerals and, and unsustainable sources for the nutrients, which that is a fair critique of hydroponics, um, we're going to actually produce organic uh, nutrients through having fish. So you have another tank mm. that produces fish. You capture that waste. You clean that waste up. And I'm paraphrasing, and then you pump that in to feed the plants. And the plants actually can actually, in some cases, uh, be used to clean the water that the fish live in. So it's an interesting system. You still need to provide food for the fish. So it's not entirely closed loop. But I think in, in the developing world, aquaponics performs a lot better than the developed world because, um, you know, you have sometimes more space. Uh, you know, the greenhouse structures can, can sometimes work and be very light. So there's, there's benefits to that. Yeah, it's interesting, Henry. So if you look at the grand steam things, I'm going to get deep on you. So this is a topic that I liked when I was going through my undergrad days. What was that, two years ago? Not that long ago. Um, we were talking about uh, the history of society and how it's evolved. Um, you know, where we start as hunter gatherers and people would roam from place to place and they'd go find, you know, meat and they'd find pick berries. But it wasn't until they discovered the rachis of the rice uh, plants and, and barley and wheat um, that they realized that they can domestically grow plants and have a, a sustainable and efficient food source. But what does that do for society? Well, more people don't have to move everywhere. We don't have to run. We don't have to hunt anymore. Uh, we can structure our diet around plants. We can stay in one place. Well, what happens when we stay in one place? Well, cities start to form. Uh, families start to form. Um, thus, we have things that start that is still and still in our culture today, basically just because of a rachis, because of a plant. Um, so I'm, the question I'm asking going forward is, are people in the future, say by 2050, when 4 billion people won't, uh, estimate 4 billion right now, might not have access to food, by 2050, do you think society will have adapted and changed um, to having their own sustainable food source within their own homes or in local cities? Yeah, I think uh, what you described there reminded me as well of some, some things I learned in, 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 um, in my studies at Columbia. I had a professor and I was really kind of bright-eyed through my blog and my experience about vertical farming. And, and she kind of reminded me of the paradox of technology that there's, it's a double-edged sword, mm. right? So, so you know, a lot of people in today's society uh, are kind of obsessed with technology as a solution to everything. And investors certainly seem to be, but there's always a, a consequence of, of that technology. There's a new uh, negative thing or, or un, unforeseen collateral effect that can happen. And you describe that, right? If, if, we, if we optimize the food system, we don't actually have to be on the farms. So we can have robots do it or whatever. We can have a new, there's so many potential, um, you know, disruptions there but there are consequences to that like we've seen with with the consequences of us urbanizing and not understanding how to grow food or where food mm. comes from or how to identify food so i guess looking to the future i i'm 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 optimistic in the sense that i'm engaged every day in trying to solve the problem and i believe that every single uh, model that we propose and, and help our clients develop is a step in the right direction but i'm pessimistic because um, I don't think that there's any historical examples of 
human society collaborating at such a global scale mm. um, in the way that we need to to solve the pressing challenges of climate change. So I, I'm not op- optimistic that we can mitigate climate change. I'm not optimistic that we can um, get together to, to make a, str- a clear plan for that. What I do think that is that humans are good at adapting. That's our natural uh, role. And so I see a lot of our job is how can we create all these tools and all these best practices and knowledge, whether it's through our DIY system that we give out for free, whether it's through our clients and their successful models that inspire other successful models, whether it's um, my educating or try to, to inspire people like I am today talking to you. You know, I think those are the ways that we can accelerate our adaptation to the inevitable problems that we're going to face in society um, over the next you know, decades in, in response to climate change. So, you know, that's where I lean. I, I think I think we're kind of not in the mitigation stage. I focus on adaptation mm-hmm. and, and that's, I have a lot of faith that humans will be able to adapt. But to be honest, um, as, as has been evidence in history, the, the people who are most able to adapt are the privileged, um, they're, 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 they're the people who have the biggest advantages in society, and it's not something that's uh, for everyone. Right. And so if, if there's things that we can do to, to improve um, the, the most vulnerable capability to, to adapt to climate change, I think that's a very noble and meaningful mission. And, and I want to bring that more into our organization, our business. But, you know, as a business, I have to be honest that we tend to work mostly with, with private clients that, that, that have funding or get funding. But I think if anybody is listening is interested in solving those problems, I would really try and focus on how can we help, um, you know, at-risk communities adapt to climate change. I think that's very, very important and meaningful work. Yeah, Henry, that was going to be uh, really my last question. I was going to ask you, what advice do you have for the next generation? You know, a lot of viewers, especially myself, you know, we're passionate about these issues, but we don't really know what to do with it. We don't have the right solution for it yet. Um, What advice uh, would you give to somebody who is interested in sustainable agriculture, but just doesn't know really what to do? Yeah, so... uh just broadly, whether you're interested in sustainable agriculture or not, I think there's so many problems in the world and, and starting a business is about identifying a problem or a gap and solving that. And, and you can choose what that is. It can be a better watch. It could be a better wheel. It could be a better software program, or you can choose a social and environmental problem. And there are business um, cases for solving those problems. And I think that that's the most exciting thing uh, for an entrepreneur to engage in. That's what I like the most is that the problems I'm solving are you know, we're, we're about generating wealth. We're a private company, but we, we're solving real problems along the way that, that, are, that make an impact. So the first step is just, you know, considering social entrepreneurship as your pursuit. The, the next step is a bit of experimentation. You know, if you don't know exactly what you want to do, um, it's important that you start to put your uh, money where your mouth is and experiment a little bit. So I started actually three blogs when I started. I had one about water technology. I had one about urban layering, which is a new strategy and idea I had for planning cities. And then I had agriculture. And I found that agriculture was more fulfilling for me. I found that the gap was more obvious. It was a bigger gap. I found that the, the response I was getting from, from my followers on that one and the brand was stronger. So I, so I ditched the other two and I, and I moved with that. And I think that's a typical, you know, prototyping fail fast kind yeah. of attitude. And I think a lot of people I meet um, who are, are holding back, right? They're afraid because they want to do everything perfect. Uh, you know, you can look back at some of my past blog posts, some of my past videos. It's not perfect. You know, you're going to make, you're going to make it, you're going to be, you're, you're going to be fine. Right. You know, the, the, the internet is sometimes very unforgiving, but, but sometimes it can also forget you. If you're not embarrassed so, by your first product, then you're not doing it right. 
Exactly, exactly. So I think that's just kind of some overall advice. In this industry, um, the best thing you can do is get hands-on experience. I volunteered a number of greenhouses and community gardens. Uh, the more hands-on experience, the more confident you're going to get. You're going to grow your network. You're going to understand what works, what doesn't. Um, so that's really a good first step. And I find that if people, you know, really invest and focus, um, you know, they, they can typically find a job in six to 12 months if they really invest um, and focus on what they want or, or come up with a business idea in that time. Well, Henry, I think that's great advice, you know, to go the social entrepreneur route, try different things, find the, the pick the one that you really like, um, yeah. and don't be embarrassed by it, by your first product, that's for sure. Now, Henry, any last words, final words from you about where people can go to learn more about agriculture or anything like that? Yeah, so agriculture started as a blog, and we still are the go-to destination for all things sustainable urban agriculture. So you can visit us at agriculture.com or follow our beautiful Instagram at agriculture. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to submit a post, you can, um, but we post typically three to five times a week, new blog posts, new stories about all things agriculture. So thanks for following. For Henry Gordon-Smith, uh, who came from blogger to consultant in, in the team over agriculture. I'm Kevin Edwards letting you know the future of agriculture is in good hands with Henry Gordon-Smith. If you're interested in more real leaders like Henry, head over to real-leaders.com and pick up your free Richard Branch edition plus 40% off your next order. Uh, when you sign up for our newsletter, Henry, it's a great newsletter, man. We've got a lot of cool content on, email coming nice. out today. I'm sure you'll be on. Great. Um, so pick up that magazine. Flip that page to purpose. And folks, always, thanks for tuning in today and keep it real. And we are on.